Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. And this episode is part of a thing we talked about when we first started planning this show. We came out of the Doctor of the Dead show and decided that whatever we did next, we wanted to expand a little bit and not feel so pigeonholed into doing one thing or another. Doctor of the Dead was very zombie-specific. And then we tried to expand a bit more into horror and do other things we wanted to do. But even though this is called Ghouls in the House, and it has the horror bent that it'll always have because that's us, uh, we also wanted to make sure we could talk about many other things we like, including a lot of great classic science fiction. And I am delighted to be doing an episode about two of my favorite 70s sci-fi movies, Logan's Run from 1976 and Soylent Green from 1973. And even though it's in reverse chronological order, we're going to lead off with Logan's run. And I would make the argument that there's still a horror factor to both of these movies. Oh, absolutely. I think by virtue of being distant future, well, not so distant future, as it turns out in with Silent Green. In the not too distant future. In the not too distant future, next Sunday, AD. A future dystopian, whether it's post-apocalyptic or just because everything went to hell. It sort of has that feeling to it that's eerie and kind of creepy, even though it's more sci-fi. I think it also helps to keep shedding light on the fact that sometimes these genre labels are so artificial anyway. Yeah, it's a story and it has elements of many kinds of storytelling. So you'll see that a lot when you look in the genre categories on streaming services when you're going to go try to find a movie to watch and you pull it up and you'll realize a lot of things get categorized as horror but then also comedy and then sometimes romance and it'll pop up and you'll say huh (laughs) one movie we've been looking at a lot in the last few months chopping mall we'll have to do that one one day (laughs) But I mean, but there's a great example. It's always called a horror movie, but it's a science fiction movie also. And it's also a comedy. And it's, yeah, it really is. So it, the labels are artificial and they're also sometimes very limiting, mm-hmm. but we like to categorize things. So in essence, both of these movies do have very dark aspects to them, but they're certainly labeled more often as science fiction or speculative dystopic future than they are horror, but it's all the same thing. Both of these are movies, you grew up in the 70s, I grew up with a lot of Charlton Heston, so Soylent Green is certainly in there, and it's part of his amazing run of sci-fi and horror that he did in that decade. But Logan's run in particular is an epic piece of work whose only real major flaw, I would say, to lead off with is that it came out one year before the entire industry and the genre in specific was going to transform so completely that what MGM did with Logan's run was going to seem poor in comparison once the upstarts from Lucasfilm showed up. It's a brilliant piece of work, and as we'll talk about, there are things visually and otherwise that don't age well, but it's an extraordinary film. I also want to mention, you came up with the idea of doing an episode of these two, and as we'll talk about there are a lot of fascinating connections between these two that i was not even aware of one thing though that is obvious that i just didn't think about initially is that these are both mgm films so these are not like independent productions these are not smaller movies from like american international or something both of these were sci-fi slightly horror-esque films being done by a major movie studio and as such they have i think a bit more weight and production value to them also worth noting that 
both of these are films based off of books and the books came out in subsequent years in the 60s. Logan's Run was 1967 and Soylent Green, which was originally a book called Make Room, Make Room with appropriate exclamation points in between, uh, was 1966. So they both were hitting on a zeitgeist of a very specific point in time. And then they took those books and tried to translate them into movies, arguably pretty substantially changing both books definitely in the making of films so they have that in common as well definitely to the point where both people i think that were the primary authors involved in both would would certainly have said i think on record it's not quite what they wrote i mean the the which is why i also want to point out although we'll throw out a few things here and there we're not here to talk about the books we're talking Mm -hmm. about the films and for me and and i admit it I have to this day, even though both of these movies are like in that circle of stuff that's close to my heart, I have never read either one. I bought years ago a collection because William F. Nolan wrote a number of sequels and I bought a collection that was like, I think, the initial trilogy. And I've still never cracked the cover of that. I mean, to me, Logan's Run is the movie. And I'm not really sure I'm all that interested, but maybe one day. But I, I did also want to mention that although William F. Nolan is the name most people remember, that first book was co-written by George Clayton Johnson, who anybody that's a sci-fi horror fan will know was a prolific writer on Twilight Zone, did things like Kick the Can and A Game of Pool, arguably the best Jack Klugman episode. He wrote the very first uh, episode of Star Trek that aired, The Man Trap, the one with the salt vampire. And interestingly, Clayton Johnson was quite a prolific writer because people remember him for science fiction, but he wrote the story and the screenplay that both the 1960 and 2001 Ocean's Eleven movies were based on. What? Yeah. You've been holding on to that little factoid and not (laughs) telling me until right now. Exactly. (laughs) So Nolan and George Clayton Johnson together wrote the Logan's Run novel, but The film took the basic concepts and drastically changed them. They changed Last Day from the age of 21 to 30, for instance. They invented Carousel. By the way, the guy who created Carousel, I only just discovered today, was one of the initial screenwriters for Logan's Run who didn't stay on the film, Stanley Greenberg, the screenwriter for Soylent Green. And he invented the Carousel idea. The movie is drastically different. So let's look at the film. And worth noting here, especially for these movies, if you have not seen them, I would highly recommend you watch them first because both of these movies really you benefit from first viewing on your own before you're going to hear us talk about them. And if by some miracle you are someone who has no cultural reference to either of these films and can go into them knowing nothing about them please 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 do it don't look up anything watch them because i think it'd be amazing to find out that somebody could have the experience of watching them and knowing nothing about them we'd love to hear from anybody that listens to us and can actually accomplish that so with that i say let's uh let's roll into logan's run Perfect worlds of tomorrow and the wonderful things to come are themes that have always inspired people of imagination and creativity. Filmmakers have envisioned adventures of survival under the most catastrophic conditions or life in an ideal society. Logan's Run is a new motion picture set in the 23rd century. 
It depicts a perfect world in which people live and love in total pleasure. So the basic premise is, we're, we're told quite a bit at the outset because we get the big opening text on the screen. It's 2274. Uh, so they actually give us a year right out. Uh, in fact, I think one time you hear it in the film, you hear the city computer say, Year of the city, 2274. So they know that, but as we'll talk about, they have no context for what that number means anyway. But for us, we understand that it's probably the same 2274 it would be for us. For them, I think it's just a matter of counting the time down to last day yeah. for them. So it's 2274, and there's a lot left out. At some point, cataclysm occurred, humanity, or, you know, it's hard to say what even happened worldwide. Certainly, near Washington, D.C. anyway, the solution was to build a huge dome city structure, stick everybody in it, run a computer that would start running everything, and create a series of increasingly elaborate and probably evolving rules and cultural norms that enabled them to maintain a population limit. And the result is, as we join this group of people, they live in a very controlled, but ultimately also in a weird way, also very free culture. They're completely hedonistic. It's all about pleasure and and nothing else. They don't appear to even have much in the way of jobs, although some people must do slightly something. The only people that really seem to have any kind of actual function in society are the Sandmen, who are basically the cops, who have one main function, which is to kill anybody that attempts to leave the city. You could also argue they're the people who operate as essentially the estheticians, like who are going to help you change your appearance or who are going to style you or provide those types of services. So I guess they're specially trained as well. And when I say specially trained, I mean they know which buttons to push on the computer that does it. Right. So it's not that specialized. Ultimately, everyone is very childlike in their ways and in their understanding of the world around them. They're not inquisitive at all our main hero logan michael york's logan uh, logan five our three main characters from most of the movie are logan five uh, richard jordan plays his best friend francis seven they're both sandmen and then there's jessica six who comes into it jenny agater's character who provides logan with a view to a possible different kind of future when he realizes he needs to become a runner and that's involved in a little plot we can lay out a couple other bits but logan is perceived by francis as being a little off because he actually dares to question things once in a while and apparently he always has so surely even in a system that has been clearly geared to making a minimum level intelligence and education and just letting them live a childlike existence of just free pleasure and nothing else just by virtue of being human some of them have probably still turned out with a bit more thought like what's going on in here why do we do these things yeah and i think francis sees it as sort of a lovable quirk in his best friend where like he finds him at the very beginning of the movie francis finds logan in the nursery looking at babies and wondering i wonder if any of these are the next logan and you know francis thinks like oh you're so funny like that's ridiculous he's like haven't you ever wondered like about the next francis he's like, no why would i care about that but he kind of likes that in his friend because it's something that amuses him. It passes the time and it's in no way subversive. 
or dangerous kind of wondering. It seems like it's a little bit considered sick or perverted to want to know, mm-hmm. you know, how children happen beyond the system. Because another thing that we figured out is the sex aspect of it is all over the place. There's the love shop where evidently you can go. And as soon as you go in, it looks like you're doused with, there's a lot of gases in Logan's room. You're doused with like pheromones or something. Yeah. And then everybody just lays into you and it's just free orgy stuff happening in the love shop. But of course, also, in addition to that, you can put yourself on the circuit, which is a non-internet, real world transporter kind of, you know, that's the other thing, by the way, people always talk about a Star Trek really pushes things scientifically. You got to just pretend, you know, you're not noticing how crazy it is that the transporter works because it's one of the stupidest things in all of Star Trek is how that's like impossible. We don't really dwell much on the fact that Logan's Run has a transporter in it also because they actually are physically transporting through the circuit from wherever they are to someone else's apartment. The amount of power and, and scanning that would have to be taking place. Is that like a materializing, though, or is it something where it's like a rotating circuit and then the door opens and you're in someone's apartment? It really looks the way the effect looks like we're supposed to think that she's like the other guy is like transporting in. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, could it be a physical conveyor? Yeah, the conveyor belt of human flesh. I doubt that that's what it is, though. But, but I mean, anyway. Well, before we get into all of that and the sort of the social dynamics of this whole society, I think it's worth sort of noting the general structure of the plot um, and what Carousel is and sort of what that feels like, I guess, for us, which is crazy. Um, but it also feels like any religion that's taken itself to the extreme and blind faith and all kinds of stuff. Well, it's also worth noting that you mentioned religion and faith. And one of the things we were thinking about was religion, of course, is one of the best systems that's ever been invented for controlling people. But in the world of Logan's Run, there doesn't actually appear to be any religion. There's no I, I was paying attention, particularly this time, even having seen it a million times. They never really directly refer to God or uh, a divine being in the city. They don't appear to have any consistent religion. There's no artifacts of that kind. But it just seems to be a more generalized faith in the system, in the computer, in the idea of their society, which is structured so that when you live to 21 and everybody has these physical little well, life 30, blocks, 30 in the movie. 21, I said. And the system works in such a way that everyone has these physical life clocks in them. You even pointed out the babies we see have smaller ones. So are the life clocks somehow organic? Do they like, grow? Do they grow? Yeah. Do they crystallize bigger? Or do you at some point get it taken out and put back in? Which seems unlikely. Yeah, it seems like they probably would grow. But they they have the life clock in them. Changes colors. It seems in, what is it, like five years, six year increments, something like that. Yeah. I should know this seeing it four million times, right? Five years would make sense if 30 is the number he where... Said, he says to the cub what happens when you turn you 14, know, 15, 16. Yeah. yeah. We're, badly, we're badly prepared for that. But anyway, uh, the life clock basically counts down your ages and then everything's color coded so that people are ridiculously... Only wearing the colors of the life clock uh, status that they're at. So there's yellows, there's greens, there's reds. And then when your red starts flashing, you're at 30. And it's time to head to Carousel, where you engage in a public execution. And you stand there with a hockey mask like Jason, fly up into the sky and get burnt to a crisp. But 
you believe that you might be renewed. And of course, no one's getting renewed there. That's just an execution. And I get the impression that they feel like renewal means you start over again as a baby. Well, this is the one of the interesting things to me. Mm. So as far as religion is concerned, there is no reference to God, but it did interest me that Logan tells Jessica at one point, you try like hell for renewal. The word hell exists in their culture, but and he uses it the way we would use it, but I wonder to what extent they even know what that word means because it doesn't... I think doesn't... it's just vestigial. Yeah, so I don't think... I don't think it makes the same connection. I do have my overarching theory about religion and the structure of their whole system, but I want to pull it in a little later. Okay. Once we go but the other thing is, I'm not so sure they believe you start over again as a baby if you renew. Because there's also one line where he says, I think it's in the same part where he says you try like hell for renewal. He says, if for some strange reason you want to be 31, meaning the idea must be... You can live past 30 if you renew. But they could easily look around and see there's no one who's 31 or older. I thought that comment was an aside as to why you would run as opposed to going to carousel. Like you'd become a runner if for some strange reason you want to be I 31. I see what you mean. So in other words, you'd keep living beyond your, your flashing life clock if you run. Right. But if you renew, it's more like reincarnation. Yeah, like why idea. why would you want to take a gamble on maybe like another year on the run as opposed to another 30 years of this blissful lifestyle that they all lead? I got you. That makes sense. To get back to the babies thing is like the computer runs everything. They're breeders. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we kind of figured out between us is it doesn't seem like there's any birth control because everybody is sexually active why limit that if it's part of the you know the joy of the system or like the freedom of the system but then that also means as you point out if anybody gets pregnant they probably harvest that right away and then it goes into the breeding system no one ever has a physical experience of being pregnant no and he and jessica logan meaning he and jessica have this conversation about it where she says like don't you ever wonder what it would be like or maybe it's better to grow children inside a mother so they know that it's something that used to be done they know that babies used to grow inside people um, but now he's saying but everyone's grown in the breeders um, i'm imagining it like a big chicken hatchery or something where that's all taking place and the reason the two of us came to the conclusion we think maybe birth control isn't something that happens is because he and Francis have this conversation, this aside about like who might be like the mother of the next Logan when after he's sort of looking at the babies and this and that and thinking maybe one of these is the next Logan. And Francis is making a joke about like I see like three or four who it could be, meaning all the people that Logan has slept with recently. So the idea being, you know, you sleep with people and maybe your DNA combines and they grow that into another person. But ultimately, I guess the system determines the balance of how many they need and at what point in time and then just destroys everything that it doesn't need. That's my guess. And that would explain why Jessica knows that children used to gestate inside the mother because there must be some kind of explanation to them as to why they're removing the eggs and not gestating them in the mother. Like there still has to be some physical removal of the material. 
It is interesting. Again, both of these movies have so many connections. One of the things that is in both of these films is an odd timeline that you have to try to figure out of who knows what and when. Like there's some peculiarities and the things they know here that they wouldn't know or shouldn't or how do they know. Later when we get to the old man, it's a little more about that. Although there's also that later part where they, they read beloved wife and beloved husband off tombstones outside. And my first thought is, how do they even know how to say those words? Because clearly that's an alien thought to them. Nobody gets married in the city, apparently. There's no, why paired people deliberately, if you want to make sure that everybody is having sex with everybody, it probably works best for the computer to maintain numbers that way. And to manage it on their own, on its own, on the other side. And also to remove attachment, to essentially have everything be randomized. And so you don't have to worry about people being attached and thinking, but that's my kid, so I have to save them. And that's another thing we're going to wind up talking about in Soil and Green that both of these share, which is both of these cultures demonstrate serious dehumanization of the people in them in order to service the system, or the society. And as much as they're treated like you can do whatever you want and have fun, they're not treated as human beings with individual thought or individual aspiration. They're treated like just cogs in the system. And that's one thing we see repeated in both films. But certainly here, there's a lack of respect for life. First of all, they have no problem with lining up they may think people renew, but they still go to Carousel knowing that some people are not renewing. So even though we know nobody is surviving that, they are still gleefully watching a public execution and cheering it on like a sporting event, knowing that some of the people they're watching, at least some, are dying in front of them. And that's just something they do. And then the other part, of course, is for the Sandmen, which is you've got an entire group of cops who go around murdering people. And the way we see Logan and Francis play it out at the beginning, they are playing it like a game and always have. And Francis in particular has a face like he is so enjoying killing somebody and torturing them for a while. And you could argue, too, that the computer essentially pre-selects who is going to be employed as a Sandman based on their desires or their personality or how well they would fit in that system. Essentially, it's odd that it even exists as something because what does it matter to the computer if people leave because ultimately you just don't want them there anymore? Well, I feel like that's probably like a lingering aspect of the original programming. Another thing we might wind up delving into more is like, when did things change? Because there's also clear indicators that this system was meant to be a survival system that didn't originally run quite the way it's running now. It's evolved into this, mm -hmm. but maybe without realizing it, the computer is still operating on one of the lingering initial orders, which was probably keep everybody inside the city because it's dangerous out there. And of course, since then, whatever it is, radiation, everything, has cleared away, but somewhere in there, a corrupted version of everybody must stay in the city is part of it. He was good, wasn't he? Showed he had some life in him in the end. <laughs> hey, that was a great shot you made. Well, you kept missing him. I had to do something. <laughs> That's crazy. He could have renewed on Carousel. Now he's finished forever. Why do they run?
I think really at the point that we enter the story, realistically, all the human beings are to the computer just data that keeps the computer running. That they're not, it's not really necessary. It's like if this were about repopulating the world or sort of expanding the human race, it would be something where when you hit 30, you get pushed out the door and say, good luck, go repopulate the world. And instead, it's just essentially a a self-contained system wherein the computer needs the humans to like validate its own existence and it can't keep them past 30 because then it's too much and the system breaks down so it's just gonna like float them in the air and set them on fire and it's so odd because you'd think that it would have been programmed at a certain point to encourage like repopulating the world like if you think all the people that have been murdered on carousel if they had been like sent out into the world nary to return to say nothing of the 1056 people we find out never actually made it anywhere mm-hmm. so i guess we should also mention as far as plot's concerned everything is driven by one major turn of events which is this is the system that it is they all live in there they do whatever they want they change their faces whenever they want through the new you. They get together in a love shop. Do they eat? We're, we're wondering about that. Because We've seen them drink. See them drink, but never once in the movie, to our memory, do we ever see food. And one of the things I was thinking was, in a hedonistic culture, would there not be heavy people? People eating a lot. So clearly there's something going on here, too, where they maintain an extraordinary level of health and body stability in this culture because it's odd that there aren't people that are just eating a lot that's not something they let them indulge in apparently yeah i mean we thought about it after we watched and i don't think we ever saw anybody eat anything so it's just like nutrients or something but uh so we have this culture they go to carousel when they're 30 they die they're not they're not entirely clear on that and then Logan discovers that one of the runners has an Ankh, which is a real symbol. It's an Egyptian symbol for life. Where this came from and why the Ankh, we don't know. And the Ankh apparently is connected to some idea called Sanctuary, which is apparently where the runners are all trying to go. When the computer sees the Ankh, it gives Logan suddenly this unilateral order. You're going to start running. you got to find where all the runners have gone and kill them. And it makes his life clock blink prematurely. And now... As Logan points out in one of my favorite lines, it's different now because it's me. It's like now he's got to run. And wouldn't you know it, when he was trying to find somebody to have sex with on the circuit, there came Jessica and she had an unk on her her neck brace thing. And she's just wearing it out in the open. As as we pointed out, people there are too stupid to probably to figure out that it's anything. And he remembered that, so he's at least smart enough to do that. And it's like, I'm going to ask this person what the unk is, and we've got our heroes who are going to start running for the rest of the movie i think one of the most poignant moments of the whole movie is when logan just thinks he's doing a routine debriefing after you know taking down a runner and dumping the belongings into the computer slot to just get taken away and then gets like the weird debriefing because the computer's like i see this on let's figure this out the computer fast forwards his life clock so that now he's blinking And he keeps asking the computer, do I get the years back? Do I get the time back? And the computer says nothing. 
and the look on his face where it's like you can see everything going on in his mind at that point in time because he can't envision a change in the system. He can't envision a way that the system could take his years away and not give them back. But the fact that it refused to confirm it obviously is confusing to him and puts that doubt in his mind. And I think really it's probably the first time in his life he's felt doubt about anything. Like he's had curiosity about things before, but he's never doubted the system or doubted the existence that he's living. He's just been curious about things. It's also interesting. It's part of a pattern we also noticed, which is they're not used to things not working right. From the littlest of things technologically to the bigger things like that, they're not used to ever encountering things not working, which also means they don't know how to fix anything. They don't know how anything works. The technology is completely one-sided, which, by the way, is another connection to Soylent Green, because there's that little comedic biplay in Soylent Green where he has the, his chief has to ask Charles Heston to try to fix his watch for him. Again, it's like childlike people. They just trust the system's always going to work. For people that only know him as, say, like Basil Exposition, <laughs> keep in mind that this is a great example of Michael York in his heyday and, and maybe not one of the actors people automatically think of, but it's just one of those things, I guess, also from familiarity. I can't imagine anybody else being Logan, but that's because, you know, you grow up with him. So he's, he's, he's great at it. And, and, of course, the other thing I always feel it's important to point out that always gets me every time I see it He's very sympathetic in that part and throughout most of it. And although sometimes he seems a bit brusque with Jessica, they have a very charming romantic relationship that develops. And I know you want to say some things oh, yes. about that. But there's also the weird moment where once he's already committed to running and knows that things are different, he actually signals the Sandmen to come when he and Jessica confront the other runners she's brought them to meet. That leads to the death of Farrah Fawcett's character and other people there, and they never address that. And Jessica never questions where the Sandman came from or why they showed up, but we're shown it. In other words, it's something we're, we're being told. The audience is being told Logan caused that, and it's always bothered me. And like you pointed out, it could be you could just justify he was scared. He thought maybe they were going to get killed. But it's weird that in a moment where you think he's already separate from them, he's still called the Sandmen. He shoots back at them too, but he still caused the deaths of people that technically he's now with. One thought I had is that maybe in sort of his simplistic way, he thinks once they walk into that space that they're about to walk into, that that's sanctuary, that he's found it. And so he's completed his mission to the computer by finding sanctuary and instead really what it is is it's the meeting place for the people who talk about sanctuary and sort of guide you to the next step which she certainly realizes the moment they're on the other side of that wall but in that initial moment i think in his mind he's thinking oh thank goodness i found it i'll signal them they found sanctuary i'll put my hand back on that chair and i will get my life clock back also, he doesn't have a very evolved sense of life. Like we said, people are devalued in this culture. He even has that line in that first conversation with her where he says um, he's never killed anybody. He really believes it. So maybe to him, the threat to their life is not 
what it seems like because he really doesn't see death in quite the same way. Well, I think in his mind, he's not killing them because they're already dead. That if you overstay your life clock, you are no longer alive. To him, life ends at 30. You go 30, you go to carousel, and that is the end of your life cycle, and either you die or you're renewed. And so to him, any of those runners, because they're past that point, all he's doing is collecting the dead to him. He's not actually killing anyone. Another thing about the mission from the computer, by the way, to, to step back to that part, is that it's odd that the computer decides to send this one person on a search and destroy mission without telling the other Sandmen, without, like, it doesn't want to potentially get this information out there. But we find out that there are runners that have gotten away. Of course, we eventually find that all of them have been stored by box, the, the remnant of another part of the system that evidently doesn't function anymore. A strange robot that has an ice level that was originally supposed to collect and again in another connection to soil and green like seaweedy stuff and fish and things from the sea plankton protein from the sea fish and plankton and sea greens and protein from the sea it's all here ready fresh as harvest day fish and plankton sea greens and protein from the sea. And then it stopped coming, and they came instead. Not the greatest robot suit in the world. I mean, it's a weird mix. It's an incredibly designed mask and look, but it moves terribly, and it's just basically like a guy on a rolling it base. It moves like a Zamboni. <laughs> it does. The incredible character actor Roscoe Lee Brown as the voice, though, which is amazing. And they find out that all the unaccounted for runners the computer is wondering about are all frozen in there. And it, he's kept them all for food. Not that they've actually been filtered back into the system, but that he was part of a, a process. And we see like the tanks of fish and other stuff. And I forget whether it's Logan or Jessica says it looks like it hasn't been used in a long time. And they're going through the infrastructure to get out of the city. Yeah. And Logan's explaining to her that they used to raise animals to make food yeah, and she knows? says like how that? barbaric why does he even know that That's... clearly there's some kind of there has to be some kind of schooling that indoctrinates you to why the system is good and so part of doing that would have to be telling you why the former system was bad okay so they probably teach them as kids like a very like warped yeah like we don't do that in the real world right? teaching children a warped version of history right <laughs> And of course, not all the kids work out because the other thing we see is cathedral. We talked about how there's an absence of religion. There is, however, a place called Cathedral Plaza and a cathedral that's long in disuse. So that's another thing. Originally, when the city was built, it must have originally contained places for worship. And that somehow became unimportant or phased out. And the cathedral wound up being the place where, for whatever reason, they would put children that were too difficult to control. They become feral. But as you noted, the one key element in there is the little girl that says she was too smart. Mm -hmm. So they try to cull the smarter kids and let them kill each other, presumably. Let them fend for themselves, I guess. And they must put some kind of food in there with them because they're not starving to death. And they're not eating each other. So, you know, presumably something allows them to subsist there. And then basically at a certain point, either they conform 
to the system and are taken from cathedral and put back into gen pop or they i guess die because like they can't stay there like basically some they, of them must they, be killing each other they could stay there but like their life clock changes no matter where they're living so your life yeah. clock is going to move on to the next cycle and presumably the societal structure that exists within cathedral only allows you to live there when you're a certain point in your life cycle. Yeah, because Logan threatens Billy with the fact that he's going to face the others turning on him soon because he's getting too old. Mm -hmm. So there's that. I do want to throw in, by the way, that this movie owes a lot uh, stylistically and visually and otherwise to another of my all-time favorite movies, Planet of the Apes. And there are a lot of odd connections. Jerry Goldsmith did the music for both. For several occasions, by the way, during this movie, we just like came out with that music's amazing. It is. It's yeah. amazing music. He used some really innovative. He always was like, you know, things can be very orchestral, like at the end is this very sweeping, mm -hmm. very classically orchestral piece. But then he'll also use a lot of the weird tonal stuff at the beginning and in the city. And he's always innovating. And the Planet of the Apes soundtrack uses a lot of very atypical and unusual instruments to create that. But there's some interesting connections. I always felt the cathedral part reminded me of like the underground New York and beneath the Planet of the Apes. But one of the things I just confirmed this time watching that I never fully bothered to check before is that the scene where Logan and Jessica are finally outside and go for a swim at the base of the waterfall. And this time I was watching thinking, could it be the same waterfall that Charlton Heston and the other guys swim in in Planet of the Apes? And yes, it is. It's Malibu Creek State Park in Calabasas, California. Those connections are maybe not deliberate, but I think since both of them are about, you know, our cultures falling apart after an apocalypse and everything, there's a lot of reasons they mm -hmm. fit well together. And also just to touch on the music a little bit more, I think one of the things that really struck me on this viewing is just how eerie and out of sorts it sounds at the very beginning. Like you're seeing what is supposed to be a sweeping overview of the city, which is clearly a very lovely tabletop model. Yeah, that's well, like we said before, some don't, don't age well. That doesn't age It did well. not age well, but in its time, I'm sure it was extraordinary to watch. It's very Disneyland, Disney World looking. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're getting a tour of what the park is going to look like. <laughs> you're not getting like upbeat city of the future music. This is not like something that's telling you, look how amazing and technological and futuristic it is. You're getting music that says, I don't know what this place is, but I don't fully trust it. Yeah, it's disturbing. Like, it's unsettling. Right at the start. Yeah, I agree. And I like that because I like that it, it just right away puts you in that mindset. And then once you're inside and you see how like clean and bright and happy everyone is, in the back of your mind, you're already thinking like something is not what it seems here because I heard that music on the way in. Mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate that quite a lot. Ultimately, I guess you could say they do seem happy. The yeah. people who live there are happy. Well, if there's one thing you and I have talked about a lot, particularly over the last year, is that you can be happy when you're really ignorant. Mm -hmm. So they're they're really ignorant of so much of what's actually going on, so they just live their lives. One of the things they're not ignorant of that I think is just sort of the shining example that should be used in all media everywhere is their treatment of consent. This film is just a masterclass in writing consent. 
and writing open-mindedness and being non-judgmental about sex and about people's bodies. Because one of the things that's made clear pretty quickly when they start on the circuit, when he's firing up the person machine that's going to like give him a sex partner, is that anybody can enter the circuit. And when you click, I want someone from the circuit, it also doesn't seem to have preferences built in. So the first person who shows up is a man. And Logan just kind of smiles and is like, no. And there's no judgment in it. There's no like, oh, I would never. And so the sort of subtext is either Logan's just not interested in men. He's not interested in men today because that's not what he was looking for. Or that's not a man he would be interested in because maybe he has a type. But either way, he just sort of sends the gentleman on his merry way and says, go enjoy your sex with someone who is not me. And then the next person who shows up is Jessica. Presumably the thought is when you enter the circuit, it's because you also want to be having sex with someone. So she gets out of the machine and is in his apartment. And so immediately he's like, let's go make out on the couch. And she's like, ooh, no, about that. And his first instinct is to say oh i'm sorry do you prefer women and it's not like a like why wouldn't you want a piece of this magnificent logan it's just one of those like whoops did i misread the room like do you want to get back on the circuit are you looking for a woman it's more so she's sort of trying to tell him i i felt sad i put myself on the circuit it was a mistake sad what do you feel sad about a friend of mine went on carousel now he's gone. He's sort of starting that conversation of, well, maybe your friend renewed. And she's like, you've got to be a moron. Ultimately, what it comes down to is he's sort of saying, like, why don't you think of me as a moron but with my clothes off? Are you just intimidated because I'm a Sandman? And she says, is the choice mine? And his response is, of course it is. And she's like, well, then the answer is no. And he's like, okay. And then she leaves. And Francis comes in with a couple of ladies who clearly are very interested in having some of the sex tonight and maybe they're all going to have just like a big old orgy in their apartment. It's possible. It, I get the impression that it's been done with them before and that he and Francis are very familiar in that way. But it's a thread that continues throughout the film in the relationship between Logan and Jessica that she comes back to his apartment again after he's been tasked to figure out where the runners go. He's thinking, maybe I can seduce her. And she was like, the answer's still no. And he's like, that's cool. And ultimately, once they finally escape the city and they're swimming in the waterfall. You can have any woman in the city. What do you really want? You know. <laughs> <laughs> the choice is still mine. Of course. This time, the answer is yes. And like it takes until that point in their relationship before they have sex, but is always her choice 
And it is always a situation where he makes it clear that it's her choice and that he respects the decision that she makes and that there's no judgment there. It's more so a disappointment because he was hoping to have sex that night and clearly it wasn't going to be with her, which he finds to be I guess disappointing because clearly he finds her attractive the first time he meets her. But the entire time, it's just a really clear consent system that they have. And it's obviously not something that is unique to Logan and Jessica. It's very clear that that kind of consent exists within that system structure. And maybe it exists because the computer doesn't want there to be any kind of discord there's no fighting. You never see people arguing with each other. But I'd like to think that at least it's sort of a, a signal that there was at least some kind of societal evolution at that point. Maybe even there was already that societal evolution when they started in on the city, that that's not something that developed in there. You mentioned about, well, Francis and Logan look like they usually have parties together pretty often. Francis seems like maybe he's the procurer who goes out and finds some girls and like, hey, let's get together. That doesn't mean they don't also do anything together. It's hard to say whether, like you said, we don't know if Logan's refusal of the man on the circuit was just always or that moment. Mm -hmm. And we also don't know the extent to which he and Francis have ever been sexually involved. And in a system like that, it's odd that when you think about how you could argue repressive and controlled that city is on the sexual side. It seems to be completely open to all possibilities because it serves the system better that way. Why not let everybody, there doesn't seem to be a barrier. Like the other thing that strikes me too, is the new you where you can go and get a new face whenever you want. And the thing I was wondering was they don't mention it. And I would argue it's probably more because they wouldn't have thought of it then than that it wouldn't have been in the story. But I wonder if the new you would also change your gender. Like, why would you not also have that option if you wanted in a culture like that? I think if it were being made now, that might be in there. They might make that a little clearer. But it's also like we see this kind of dynamic a lot in these stories, whether it's meant to have a sexual component or not. But just as another aspect of that potential relationship, it's also worth noting that Jessica, of course, is the the interloper that ruins the, the bond that Logan and Francis have that leads Francis to do things he would never have done before. He leaves the city too. He never once thinks twice about the things he's doing that are completely at odds with his worldview because all he wants to do is get Logan back or punish him for leaving him or maybe convince him to come back. And maybe it's more than friendship or maybe it is just friendship, but in a deeper way than we would normally think of. And I also just want to throw out the fact that I watched it 4 million times and only now realized that their numbers tell you everything because it's Logan 5 and Francis 7 and Jessica 6 is in between the two. I think if nothing else, you can say that Francis has a very deep love for Logan and they don't really make it clear whether that love is romantic or not. Maybe it is ultimately because there is no family structure you don't have siblings, you don't have parents, you just have the people you surround yourself with. And the two of them clearly operate as if they're family in some way, whether that's like their brothers, whether that's like their lovers, whatever it is, there is 
love there and it's one of the reasons he's so desperate to have him back and i think also because francis can't conceive of things outside of his own worldview his world exists with logan in it and so without logan there he's completely adrift because it changes things and these are not people who are familiar at all with change in that sense I mean, obviously they could get like different hair and like new cheekbones, but they're not accustomed to like actually having life changes. We get to the part where they leave and it really becomes another film for a while because they're outside. We then finally get all the post-apocalyptic stuff that in a way you're kind of hoping for in a movie like this. Great matte paintings and shots of like all of Washington, D.C. covered in vines. Although, as we pointed out, if you know D.C., some of it makes no sense. Like at one point you said it looked like they walked from the Lincoln Memorial through a neighborhood in a cemetery and wound up at the Capitol. And then also there's an ocean, apparently, two days walk from D.C. And one of the things I mentioned was, well, couldn't it be like a Planet of the Apes kind of scenario where obviously terrain has changed? And of course, sadly, we know right now that we're facing potential drastic climate change that could bring the ocean inland. So could that have happened? So the ocean part is really the only part of that that makes sense to me as something that could have happened. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of years in the future, maybe all of the polar ice caps melt and the sea level rises drastically. It overtakes the eastern shore of Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay and suddenly DC is right near the ocean. I could see that as happening. What I can't see as happening is somehow... Between the Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol building, somebody deciding to put in an old cemetery <laughs> that's been there for a long time and also Georgetown. It's like somehow they dropped it in the middle. And it's something where like we talked while we were watching it about the fact that a lot of people who are native New Yorkers will see things that are set in New York and be like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. And for us, there aren't a lot of things that get set in Baltimore so you don't have that experience but I mean DC's right around the corner and so we're intimately familiar with the geography of Washington DC and it's one of those things every time that really takes me out of it mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be dramatic and it's supposed to be that wink to the audience that suddenly tells them where they are in the grand scheme of things that you need that historical marker so that they can see what happened to the world that they know. And so you show them something they recognize from the world that they're in, but they always get the scale wrong. Lincoln is, it's a big statue, but like, it's not that big. He's not that big. It's not that big. For those of you who've never been, it's not that big. Yeah. It's very large. It's an amazing statue. Also somehow in movies, they only are ever like 10 steps from the ground to the Lincoln statue. It's a hill. It's a hill of stairs <laughs> to get up there. But you can stand at the Lincoln Memorial. You look down the mall and you have the Washington Monument in the center of it and then the Capitol building at the other end. Even if you're a slow walker, to walk from the Lincoln Memorial to the Capitol building, I would argue even post-apocalypse, is not going to take you more than 20 minutes and there are no residential 
buildings mm. in that area and there's no way you could put a residential building in that area because everything is made of like concrete and stone and i don't know why they wouldn't have had them go past smithsonian museums instead of georgetown say lovey obviously they didn't know dc as well as they thought they did but that's okay <laughs> One of the things that does come up in this part of the movie is one of the best performances in the film, too, which is longtime British character actor Peter Ustinov. He's quite an amazing man, too. Look him up and read all the things he did in his life. As the old man that they meet in the capital, who has 4,000 cats and appears to spend most of his time thinking about and quoting from T.S. Eliot, Old Possum's book of Practical Cats. All you Cats fans, you're going to hear snippets from Cats. Above and beyond... There's one name that's left over, and this is the name you never will guess. It's a name no human research can discover, but the cat itself knows and never will confess, will you, Henry? <laughs> His every nuance and line reading is just solid gold, and he's an incredibly endearing character. But he also brings up some interesting, well, there's an interesting parallel in the sense that he too is also childlike. He's a much older person, but he's childlike. There's even the cute moment where they decide they're going to be husband and wife. And he makes the joke about beloved son and like he's there. And it's just, it's cute, but it also shows, like you said, I think at one point, they can communicate well because they're all children. Yeah. But it also brings up a problem, which is he's what? He's like in his 70s, 80s. And this is 2274. And all of them have been living in the city. But he talks about his parents and how they told him there weren't other people. But that also means it can't have been that long ago that his parents were there and that maybe some other people. What's been going on outside and where are the other people? Because it can't be just him. It just, it, it brings up a lot of questions. Plus, as it turns out, there were always no further than two days walk for a healthy person from a city where people had been. And so the other question that I think they really just didn't think through and didn't cover is, did anyone ever try to get in? Was there anything that ever went on? Because it doesn't look like there was ever an instance of an incursion and why did they think there were no people when there was this like domed city on the horizon? Well, I did want to mention that uh, it's in the Capitol that one of my all time favorite sci fi images from any movie or comic or anything happens, which is with the final showdown between Logan and Francis, who's been following them all the way is the part where in the middle of the fight, Francis picks up the tattered American flag and they start fighting with that. And I just love there's so many layers to that moment, including the fact that both characters in that moment have absolutely no idea of the meaning behind the object that they are using to fight. But we do. And it's such a powerful image seeing that flag torn to pieces. And I'm not much of a flag person, but the meaning it represents in that context of like, here it is in the future and all that's gone. And here they are fighting in the Capitol with the vines everywhere. Plus the fact that before Francis picks up the flag, Logan is pelting him with books. He's picking up books off the table and just hurling them at him as if to say like i don't know maybe i'll hit you with some knowledge but i don't think they even know what books are they're like he no. and jessica are like picking them up and looking at them like what is this they've never seen a cat before 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things they've never seen. And there's this childlike wonder to the whole experience, except for uh, nature and animals, which Jessica and I truly agree on. I hate outside. I hate it. Jessica. I hate Jessica. It. After that, we get to the, the final thing where Logan and Jessica decide they have to go back and try to share some truth with everybody. But you mentioned earlier the idea that, like, we talk about runners leaving. Had anybody ever tried to get in? And one of the things that's always tormented me all the years watching this movie is, what the hell is going on with the whole thing about the runners and the ankh and the keyhole and the door? It always struck me as weird because the computer apparently doesn't 100% know what's going on, but it also seems like a lot of the way out is actually part of the system. Or was it added later by somebody to try to get out? Why is it so automated? And what's with the unk? And you said you had some thoughts about this. I have a very full theory as to how their society as it is when we meet them exists. Which is to say that that is not the way things were when they first went into that city. And clearly we've touched on the fact that there was a cathedral that Cathedral Plaza was part of the city. It's a very large place and also a place that has built-in doors that can close and lock. And ultimately, I feel originally was sanctuary. That sanctuary was the sanctuary. Oh. Like the actual cathedral. Okay. That the computer knows what sanctuary is, the word. And presumably the only thing that could really get people organized and together in like this kind of structure to ride out the apocalypse is likely to be religion. That there was religion of some sort involved. The Cathedral Plaza was part of the initial structure of the city and that a lot of the other portions of it were probably built out later because it's certainly farther out from what is now the center of things, which is Carousel. But Carousel was probably not originally the center of things. It may not have even existed at the start of it. Because clearly anybody entering a bunker is doing so with the idea that they have to preserve humanity, not continually kill off the people inside. Right. It's about preservation. It's about repopulation. So my thought is that at a certain point... They were riding out this apocalypse and clearly got to a point where there were too many people and the city could not sustain. They were going to have to figure out a way to address the overpopulation that they were experiencing within their walled city. So my thought is that there were two different camps of people. There were the people who basically really clung to the religion and said, you can't, you can't just kill people. Like, that's not what this is about. And then there were the people that basically said, look, we're just going to have to be clinical about it. And we're going to have to start a new religion that is a way to reduce the population. Coming up with the idea then of renewal, of carousel, of needing to sort of indoctrinate people starting when they're young, into this new system. But anybody who was clinging to that old religion is going to fight that because they're going to still believe in the religion that they have. And they're going to know that carousel is a lie, that renewal is a lie. It doesn't exist. So the computer system that reacts to the Ankh and that lets you through was meant for people 
who were part of the original religious sect who were trying to escape from this new system of carousel and renewal. And so somebody programmed it in through these back channels that obviously still existed. And the main computer doesn't know about or else it would be doing something about it. If the main computer knew that that computer existed, it would just shut it down. Hmm. But it doesn't. And something still operates in the back there that even though the tanks haven't been used in a while, it has electricity. There are still fish swimming in the tanks that are back there that yeah. aren't being used. So all of the people who knew how to operate those systems eventually were gone because either they died out or they were chased out. All of these back channels exist for the people who originally were part of the group that was there who were trying to get out and to remove themselves from whatever this new culture was that was being built up. So the idea of sanctuary is not necessarily getting you to the cathedral, to the cathedral plaza, but getting you to your religious community who was then going to regroup and try things again. It's one of the rare occasions where I feel like I'd love to see a prequel now because I'd like to see that power struggle and how that all happened. But I wouldn't trust anybody to do it because I'd want them to faithfully recreate the 1976-looking version of the city. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. I want mm -hmm. that Dallas Mall back again. But that's brilliant. I, I want to add one thing to it that might link us further as Soylent Green. So one of the things we keep talking about is there seems to be an absence of food. We see people drink. There's a lot of gases. And we know that Boxit was evidently originally part of the earlier version of things where he would collect all the stuff from the sea, and that's where they were getting their food supply. But one of the things we keep pointing out is that whole thing appears to have shut down. He said that stopped coming, and then the runners started showing up, so he started storing them. One thing we both agree on is that those runners never went back into the food system because we see them there. They're all frozen. However, what are they eating in the city if there's no longer any supply of material? What else is there in the city? And it suddenly occurred to me, what if that's part of Carousel? We know they have transporter technology. What if they aren't being vaporized when they go into Carousel? What if they're being transported somewhere where they're broken down and turned into food? And there's potentially a major connection to our other film. But it only really started occurring to me while we were talking just now, because where else are they getting food from? It appears that all the systems to create food broke down. The only other answer would be if it's 100% synthetic, that it's something that is being chemically produced in like a... Wouldn't you stop to get proteins and stuff from somewhere? Hypothetically, but I guess maybe if like there are byproducts from other processes that then feed into something that makes the food, that then the byproducts exist that create food again. It kind of really nailed it down for me, though, when you described your idea of how the people that created Carousel were looking at things clinically and thinking we have to preserve the status quo here somehow. And then mm -hmm. it occurred to me, why not kill two birds with one stone with Carousel? I kind of like it now that I've thought of it. <laughs> Makes Logan's run even darker. When we finally get to the end, uh, Logan finally confronts the computer with the truth of everything, which the computer is, shall we say, not prepared for in any way whatsoever. In fact, in true Kirk uh, Star Trek style, it appears all you need to do to this computer is tell it no a couple times. And it will go insane and start blowing up. And as we pointed out, it looks like cataclysmic when everything's blowing up. But as you clearly see, if you 
consider the end credits to be part of the story. The city is still mostly intact. It's like the computer main complex blew up. Some other stuff blew up. But the city is probably still fine. But then everybody pours out to meet the old man who they brought back with them. As we pointed out, though, this is not a happy ending at the end of Logan's run. They are screwed. They have no idea how to survive. They don't know how anything works. They certainly can't fix it. They're like Jessica, probably. Most of them going to hate the outside. There will be people like Logan and Jessica who will probably be more capable of adapting. But a lot of these people are going to die. That seems pretty obvious, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? That that's the way it's going to go. And you also pointed out you don't see a lot of the yellows coming out. Nope. I don't know what happened to the kids, but I think they pretty much all just burned up in the city. I think it's just they didn't want to hire kid actors for that final scene. I guess so. so. It's the same thing we always come back around to in Halloween 2. When they explode the hospital, does it skip the neonatal ward? Like all the babies that you saw earlier in the movie in the hospital, are they in a different wing? Or did they explode in the fire? And I guess it kind of brings up the same question here. Oh my. As we head into movie two, I did want to mention before we transition completely that we're introducing a new minor feature here on Ghouls in the House. We noticed, well, we recently watched a show on streaming, a documentary called Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story. It's from a book by Molly Gregory, and it's kind of hosted by Michelle Rodriguez and takes a look at a lot of the women in the industry who have done extraordinary work in stunts in film and television. And one of the things that comes up in that documentary is the extraordinary legacy of one particular family, the name of which I've seen all my life at the end credits of movies, and that's the Epper family, E-P-P-E-R. And the Eppers have been in the stunt business for generations now. And uh, you will frequently see a number of Eppers in the end credits of many of the movies you watch. So... It occurred to us that maybe we should give the Epper count for the movies when we watch them. (laughs) The interesting thing is, I did a double check. None of the movies we've covered up to this point had any Eppers involved. So that's an Epper count of zero from everything up to this point. Starting with this episode, both of our films have an Epper count above zero. And appropriately enough, perhaps, Logan's Run starts with one. We have an Epper count of one. And the one, in fact, is one of the ones featured in Stunt Women, Jeannie Epper, who most people would know most of all as the primary stunt double for Linda Carter as Wonder Woman on television. Which also means she's probably the one doubling Jenny Agutter for stuff like when they're you know swimming around in the water and everything. Yeah, I would think so. So we have an Epper count of one with Jeannie for Logan's Run. And as we shift over to Soylent Green from three years earlier, the Epper count goes up to four. Charlton Heston is playing one of those few men of persistent integrity who, in every time, seek to control their own destiny and the destiny of the world. He and a movie company are projecting man's chilling future on a motion picture screen. The ominous prediction of Soylent Green. Another movie based on a book. Uh, You had some information about the origins of that that you wanted to talk about about the book itself yeah a little bit if you think of the book to movie comparison between make room make room and soylent green as the book and movie version of world war z um in essence make room make room is like a multi-narrator book so it's looking at all of the different people involved in a story 
that takes place in this sort of future dystopia, ultimately the only science fiction aspect of it is the dystopia. But really the book itself is sort of a crime thriller. Like it still centers around a central figure of a police officer. There are still food riots. It's still a wealthy man who is killed and the police officer gets involved with the man's mistress. Ultimately, it's just a crime novel. It's just following them over the course of this year leading up to New Year's and it's giving you the story from all of their perspectives. It hops narrators. Unlike World War Z, I do think that the movie certainly does an excellent job of adapting it to a single narrator view and obviously changing a lot of things. I mean, it really was just a jumping off point for the movie. One of the things I in particular wanted to point out is that especially this watch of the movie, I was really struck by how many of the central themes I recognized from various Kurt Vonnegut short stories. The book that this movie was based on was from 1966. I feel like there's a lot of elements in the film that come from two stories in particular. One is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Um, which some may also know as The Big Trip Up Yonder. And that was originally published in 1954. So it's quite likely that Harry Harrison, who was not only the author of Make Room, Make Room, but also sort of a central figure in trying to elevate science fiction as something that's worthy of critique and worthy of study. He did a lot of work with Brian Aldiss to kind of start some of the first science fiction journals that looked into it. So I think it's very likely he would have read Vonnegut's story, uh, especially because even if he didn't read it when it was published in magazine form, he probably would have read it in 61 when Vonnegut first put it in a collection. Most people know it from being included in the collection Welcome to the Monkey House from 1968. And Welcome to the Monkey House as well has elements that I think are drawn from to make this movie. If you haven't read these stories, I do think they're worth reading. I think Welcome to the Monkey House as sort of uh, the flip side of the consent coin has a lot of problems with it when it comes to consent, when it comes to rape and to assault. Well, you said Soylent Green, the film too, is like the opposite side of the coin. It is. Yeah, Yeah, it is. And when it comes to sort of the treatment of women and gender roles and Mm -hmm. things like that. But one of the interesting elements of Welcome to the Monkey House is the idea of world overpopulation and the advent of suicide parlors that are supposed to encourage people to sort of help the world depopulate in a soothing and calming way. And then one of the elements from Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow that I think it's pulled from is the idea that it looks at a distant future where there is no aging, that they've managed to very reliably and very cheaply solve the problem of aging so that no one ages, no one gets sick, no one dies. And the problem then becomes, what do you do with all the people? And so they're all living on top of each other. Whole families are living in a single apartment, sleeping in hallways, and they're subsisting off of a food that's made from a combination of seaweed and sawdust 
And I feel like those elements all get pulled in to this, whether they got them directly from Vonnegut or again, whether this is all just mid 60s to mid 70s cultural zeitgeist. I don't know. But I, I do think it really struck me this watch is feeling like they were pulling from that, especially because these weren't things that were in the book and are in the movie. I'll point out, as I already did before, too, that Stanley Greenberg, the one who actually wrote the script for this and took extraordinary liberties, I mean, you know, with the studio's involvement, to take the bare bones of the idea that Harry Harrison had and make the film. And of course, the thing the movie is most famous for, its big surprise ending, was entirely an invention of the film. But I do want to point out that my theory about Carousel also being involved in creating using people as food kind of I feel lends it additional weight since that's the one thing in the Logan's Run script that Greenberg created before he dropped out of that one so I wonder you know if he ever had that idea in his head when he came up with Carousel but and how much backstory he would have woven into the plot of Logan's Run had he continued on it, with the script but yeah. instead he kind of drops some carousel and is like i gotta skedaddle you guys kinda, i got other stuff to do kind of would have been fascinating to know that the, both movies were written entirely by the same guy that would have been interesting but to step back a bit soylent green again you have to have seen the whole thing we're telling everything and yes soylent green's people we all know this already i'd love it if somebody out there could have watched this without knowing that so as we said at the beginning of the episode if there's any chance at all you're now listening to us Having seen Soil and Green for the first time, we'd love to hear from you because I, I've never had the opportunity really to, to see it with anybody who's seeing it for the first time or doesn't know. It's, it's just the problem of, with quotable quotes. Yeah, it's one of the most ubiquitous surprise endings in any film ever. Uh, there's even a company now that's putting out Soylent, but it's very different. From... Yeah, there's a soy-based uh, <laughs> food brand called Soylent, which I, that's yeah. a terrible idea. Terrible plan. But basically... <laughs> The premise for Soil and Green, it's not 2274 as in Logan's Run. It's 2022. It's just two years from now. And there are an amazing number of things in this movie that are painfully accurate, at least uh, in a thematic way, if not strictly in a physical or literal way. And a number of things that are awful. And one of the things that we see in the maybe a bit on the nose opening montage is the way in which industrialization and all sorts of things have fed into where we wind up in the 2022 we're introduced to. In New York, with a population so extensive that people are literally sleeping in cars that look like they're post-apocalyptic, you know, stopped in the middle of the road. People are living in piles and buildings with armed guards to keep other people out. Everybody's wearing identical-looking beige clothing, and this is one of the rare sci-fi occasions of the idea of people wearing identical clothing, where, as you pointed out, where it kind of, you could probably figure out it makes sense that they would. A little bit, because the idea is that nothing is growing. I mean, a few things will grow, but certainly not in the kind of quantity that you need to sustain humanity. And it's been the the sort of death of plant life and animal life that has led to this crisis that they're in. So my thought is that the majority of what we all wear right now still relies on plant-based fiber. Um, Cotton is a plant. And even if you're wearing something that's made with a blend like there's not a lot of things that are made strictly from a non-natural fiber i mean silk as well as coming from nature i think rayon comes from bamboo there's a lot of plants that create fabric so if you're in a world without plants then realistically they would have to provide people with something 
to put on their bodies that is synthetic and whether or not somebody's handing it out to them or that's just what they have to choose from clearly there's not a lot of options most dyes are also plant-based it explains a lot basically about why this culture is so samey and so bland yeah and it also serves the purposes of a 1% elite to keep the 99% as unengaged, as uneducated. Just like in Logan's Run, it is yet another culture, centuries earlier in this case, that are uneducated, all of them children, all right up to our hero, Charlton Heston as Thorne, who are clearly childlike in their perception of the world, in their belief in certain basic structures of society that were evidently imposed at a certain point to try to contain things. There's a runaway greenhouse effect, as they refer to it in the movie, but it's climate change run rampant with heat wave all year round. Uh, Many things in this film are familiar, and 2022 is not that crazy. One of the few things that's off is they say the population in New York in 2022 is 40 million, and in real life right now it's around 8. So it would have to change pretty drastically, but it would. But it's also not crazy to have a city with a population that large because I lived in Beijing for a while. And when I left, I think the unofficial tally of population of Beijing was about 20 million. So it's not crazy. Well, another thing, too, is there's that running thing we always talk about in science fiction about how few earlier science fiction um, stories of any kind ever appeared to be able to foresee the internet, and they don't. But again, there's a potential built-in explanation here in that as things continue to degrade in this world's end of the 20th century, it's conceivable that some of that technology might not have happened in favor of other things happening, which led to a world in which there's still push-button phones, although, as you pointed out, cordless. His police phones in the boxes are cordless. I was very impressed that it was cordless. Everything's got a wire. So I think by the time you get maybe into the 70s, they at least had a concept that things could have no cord. And uh, there is what I believe is the first appearance in any feature film of a video game, because Cheryl Lee Taylor Young's character is playing a very early vector kind of game. Good to hear you laugh. Come on and play. No, thank you. Thank you for the toy. I'm glad it amuses you. And other fascinating things about this, writing is apparently not a foregone conclusion because at one point he actually asks, can you write? And so that means most people are probably illiterate and don't get any of that education. And why would you want them to if you want to keep them controlled? And as far as food, everybody is eating various kinds of Soylent, which is from the Soylent Corporation and was evidently devised from the obvious, was a portmanteau of soybeans and lentils and protein from the sea and all these things being brought in to give people food. And you can get their different variations, Soylent yellow, Soylent red. We're not really ever told precisely what distinguishes them. Maybe it's nutritive value, but the new stuff is Soylent green, which is all the rage right now. And uh, and you already know where that's going. My thought has always been that Soylent Yellow is either entirely or primarily soy, and Soylent Red is primarily or entirely lentil, since that's the soy's natural color is yellow. Okay. And most lentils are either brown or red, is like a red lentil. And then green is supposed to have the plankton in it. Like you have to make it so clear to people because they're that dumb. I mean, you have to color code it so that they know what it is that they're eating. 
other aspects of this culture that are certainly an interesting part of our discussion, especially in light of having just talked about Logan's run, is, again, the dehumanization of people in general. One of the running themes throughout this film is that people are objects. And since we ultimately find out people are also food, it certainly makes sense to think that, again, this 1% elite who would gladly run everything forever, they're okay with the way things are because they still have access to beef and strawberries and all the things that they grow outside the cities and the country, which is evidently rigorously controlled and, and guarded. But everyone else is subsisting on Soylent. Everything is in service to the elite controlling things, including the fact that this very much feels to me like a 1970s sci-fi vision of what the Republicans would always want to have happen, especially in the way that this culture treats women. Because as the flip side to the consent issue you were discussing in Logan's Run, mm -hmm. in Soylent Green, Women have been entirely reduced to, as they refer to, furniture. We see some older women in the crowds, but whenever you see a young woman in this movie, invariably, she's furniture. She's living in an apartment, she's assigned to that place or to a person, and providing sex and other services, and they're not even referred to as people, they're furniture, in the same way that we also meet a group of very elderly people who are referred to as books. They're the information analysts, like Edward G. Robinson's character of Saul, who works with Thorne and provides all his information for his investigations. They're books. Between that, the books, the furniture, and the fact that when riots take place, the police just roll in construction scoop vehicles and scoop people up. In fact, to me, one of the most potent images in this whole movie is when the riot happens because they cut off the soil supply and there's not enough left, mm -hmm. and the construction vehicles roll in. People are being scooped up and just piling over each other and falling over each other. And at the same time, we also see all the Soylent falling and, and piling and, and falling. And like, if you were paying attention, there's your foreshadowing right there. Soylent, people, it's all the same stuff. And I think that's probably where a lot of your eppers come in. It's <laughs> probably, uh, probably a lot of eppers happening there. Yeah. yeah, that and in the like eventual obligatory like factory chase scene that has to happen, probably yeah. some eppers falling. But so that's the way the culture is set up. And like you said, as far as consent is concerned, these women are like born into a culture where they don't get a choice. They're serving a system. They're serving people. Yeah. And when we first meet Cheryl, who essentially belongs to the apartment where a wealthy man is murdered. And that's sort of where our central police investigation comes in. He asks her, are you furniture? And she says, yes. And he said, personal or apartment? And she says, apartment. And it's she doesn't look offended that he's asking. It's very matter of fact. And so he's just taking his notes and, okay, she's furniture and she belongs to the apartment. And it's part of the plot moving forward where she said they're going to get a new tenant for the apartment and he decides whether or not he keeps me. If she can be pleasing or attractive to the new tenant, then he'll say, I'm going to keep the furniture that comes with my apartment. It's just, it's gross. It's just really gross to watch. There's also a sort of structure of middlemen who exist to sort of keep that system going there's the bodyguard who escorts Cheryl to the, the larder to get 
like the supplies and clearly you know he's part of the system as well that allowed for the tenant to be murdered eventually and try to keep society the way it is you've got charles the building manager whose job basically seems to be to like complain and to like beat women and that's it leonard stone's entire career is largely about playing sleazy middlemen I mean, that's the other thing is this movie has a lot of Hollywood history in it. There's a lot of interesting casting in this. Joseph Cotton, like a a major Hollywood figure in his own right, has the very tiny role of Simonson, the guy who gets killed at the beginning. Quite a bit of pedigree there to have Joseph Cotton show up for what amounts to basically a scene. Charlton Heston, of course, concluding his amazing run of science fiction films, a man who was already an icon for being Moses and, let's not forget, briefly God in the Ten Commandments, did an incredible run of every one of them cult classics from Planet of the Apes in 1968 to Beneath in 1970, Omega Man in 1971, and then finally Soylent Green in 1973. And I always also fascinated and delighted by now, there always seems to be a reference in, in all of his sci-fi movies to his previous role in the sense that there's usually some kind of sly joke about him possibly being God. And in this one, there's one with Edward G. Robinson. Good God. What God, Mr. Old? Where will we find him? Perhaps at home. Yes, at home. And then, of course, Edward G. Robinson, he's Saul. It's a fascinating relationship. They're like father and son. We never really find out how that began. They're not related. They live together because Saul is his book. And Saul is listed as a police book. Yeah. He specifically is assigned to that officer. And the captain, the chief, Brock Peters, who I always remember from the Star Trek movies, but a lot of you might also know from To Kill a Mockingbird, he was Tom. And he's part of the corrupt system. And he even tells him at one point, you know, Saul's getting old. We can get you another book. And Thorne doesn't want another book. He wants Saul. But it's an incredibly warm relationship between the two of them. It also always delighted me as a kid to have a movie where someone was openly Jewish. And it was like a pleasant depiction. Saul, Edward G. Robinson himself was Jewish, of course. And there's something extra special to me about this movie that you get a little of that in there. He's the keeper of knowledge. And then all the other old people we meet, including Celia Lovsky, first person on screen to ever do the Vulcan hand salute. They all seem to me to read as if they're Jewish, and if not, certainly Eastern European. And it says a lot that like they're discarded too and treated like objects, but they're the smart people in the culture and Mm -hmm. they're the keepers of the information and they're guarding a vast library of materials and that's sort of their currency like they call it the exchange which is where they keep basically the entire repository of knowledge that they have in a way keeping societal structure the way it is it's why they work for the police department that it's not like a public library where anybody can go read They keep the books there. Only other books are allowed into the exchange. Books, items, and books, people, all interchangeable here. Mm -hmm. So it's not open to the public, and they use their abilities in order to aid the police investigations and maintain the status quo. And it's not really for the betterment of society. It's not why they exist. But one of the things that comes up throughout the course of the investigation, of course, is that Thorne 
discovers that Simonson's death is the tip of the iceberg and an investigation that will basically blow open the whole secret of what Soylent Green really is. Of course, the exchange is the first one to figure it out. They kind of already knew before he came in with yeah. the materials. So, like, there's there's another aspect of this, too, where both movies basically have unhappy endings in one way or another. Logan's Run wants you to feel at the end like it's a triumphant happy ending, but it kind of isn't. Soylent Green definitely is not a happy ending. And there's also the, the beautiful juxtaposition of, like, the classical music with the flowers and everything, and this is not a happy or, or, or bright world. Everybody in this world is trapped. There's the whole sad thing with Cheryl and like there's like this brief moment where she and Thorne kind of have, again, childlike, like an infatuation. Yeah, they just have a, a little bit of a connection for the short time he's investigating. And it seems like a foregone conclusion. She just automatically assumes that part of the way this works is she has sex with the cop who's investigating things while it happens. That's just going to happen. Yeah, he just walks in to question her and takes her in a room and they immediately start undressing while they're talking. It's very matter of fact. She fixes it's the bed up. It's just like, what? yeah they do it's what they do including the fact that he ransacks the place for everything he, he steals can take. soap and food and yeah you know, brings it home with him and that's like that's part of the perks of his job is he gets access to this stuff once in a while you turn that air conditioner on all the way all the way we'll make it cold like winter used to be what about breakfast anything you like strawberries an egg no strawberries oh well i've never seen strawberries all right an egg then who the hell needs strawberries? Saul helps us to put it all in perspective by showing how, you know, sad he is to think that this is where they've come to. But then that also brings up some questions about this, perhaps more so than the old man bringing up questions in Logan's run. There's some oddities here about what's going on in this culture and when things happen the way they happened. Saul remembers things being more like the way we know them. Maybe not entirely, but enough. As the world wants you, punk. Yeah, so you keep telling me. Well, I was there. I can prove it. I know. I know. When you were young, people were better. Oh, nuts. People were always rotten. And the world was beautiful. But that can't be that long ago. It's within his lifetime that that happened. And yet Cheryl remembers that her grandmother had a funeral, which seems strange. And it's like, what? when exactly did things change and how did that happen? Well, also one of the things that's made clear is that Cheryl is using to her advantage the fact that she appears youthful, even though she isn't. When the new tenant comes in, he asks her, how long she's been there and she said a long time and he said how old are you and she says 21 and the idea the fact that first of all she's willing to say 21 and that she's been there a long time like who knows how young they actually start women as furniture in this building but he said well charles told me that you were i forget what he says like 26 24 I think yeah something like that like a little older and he said well that makes both of us liars and he kind of likes that she has a sense of humor, although clearly he is not going to be as wonderful a tenant as the previous one. He's going to be horrible. It's going to be awful. Um, but he does want to keep her. And so Thorne tells her, good, you, you should stay. Take care of yourself. But I guess the question is, how old is Cheryl really? Well, I'm assuming that she's got to be at least 30 then at that point. Easily. Or, but or near it. Yeah, but the question, I guess, is maybe she's even 
older and that they have access to like plastic surgery or I guess the equivalent of like Botox or something. I suppose. Although given the way she looks, we're also, we're not in Logan's Run New You territory no. in, in the kind of technology they have. So it would only be what we could probably do today. Mm-hmm. Like she wouldn't be convincingly that much younger, say she was in her 40s. That's true. So I'm assuming she, because like there's. And part of it might just be good genes. I mean, yeah. maybe she just happens to appear youthful. But either way, it does feel odd. And it feels like maybe the societal shift also could have been gradual, depending on where you were. That maybe if you were farther out in the countryside and not in a major city, that maybe the decline happened a little slower. Maybe she came in from elsewhere. Well, another aspect of this, too, is. There's the tantalizing thing in both in a lot of these kind of movies where you don't really know what the rest of the world is like Mm. or even other cities in the United States. We know New York, although he does make a point at one point when she suggests leaving. He says something like all cities are the same. It's probably countrywide. However, that does suggest another aspect to me, which is I feel like this might be very much what the United States has done. And particularly lately, I feel even more certain that Soylent Green is trying to say the rest of the world is looking at this place and going, we're all glad we're not there. Because there's also that weird, almost ridiculously pseudo-patriotic moment where she says, why can't we go to the country and this and that? And he says, it's guarded. Those farms are like fortresses. Why? Good land's got to be guarded the way they guard the waste disposal plants, the Soylent factories, the plankton ships. You know, there are idiots in this world who want to take away everything we've got first reaction anybody watching this should think at that point is what the hell do you have and why do you need guards at the waste disposal plant yeah, it's like, like who's is, taking away your waste disposal it's like you you're com- that completely deluded that you think anybody wants any of this except that that makes perfect sense mm-hmm. based on you know the way this culture would evolve and what it would tell its people like you know think about how great we have it while you all die in a pile you but know, also clearly eating your grandparents clearly this was something that was a very sudden shift and then they just had to roll with it. Like we're not talking about hundreds of years of becoming this. And no. like they weren't even imagining that because if this was a movie being made in the seventies and they're saying this is 2022, right, this right. is not the far distant future. This is something that happens pretty quickly and pretty catastrophically. And also like, I guess if we want to look at uh, another thing that I, I used to write a column. I really loved doing called you call this the future for a number of sites where i would pick movies that were like this wouldn't have qualified yet but i would do movies where it's like let's take a look at a movie that takes place in a future that's already now happened and see how well they did what they Mm. got right what they got wrong like for instance you pick a movie that was supposed to be set in 1990 and now we're in the year 2000 whatever it's like what they do this is close enough you know and one of the things that's interesting about this is this movie has the usual issues that any of these movies tend to have which is it's painfully 70s in many ways that clearly show it's not the 2022 we will have but it's very very accurate in terms of the ideas that it's representing certainly in terms of the potential climate change and and what we could wind up doing it's not that crazy there and and that's frightening But there are things in this that are very accurate in terms of the tendencies of American culture and what could happen. 
even if the blood still looks like tempera paint in the 70s. Oh, the rest of it, it, yeah, the rest of it is still very, very painfully real in the way it depicts a lot of these things. Also, when while we were talking about cast before, I just wanted to mention a few other people that pop up in this that I always love seeing. Small roles, but good ones. Paula Kelly is Martha in this, and she's the nurse in Andromeda Strain, but she has one good scene. And uh, actually, it's interesting. There are a lot of really good black character actors in this that turn up in a lot of other things in the 70s. And it's we talked about the gender aspects of Soylent Green. You also get a sense that black people in this culture can't get past a certain point, that that also seems very calculated. She's furniture. But then we also noted that it's a very multicultural group who are Cheryl's friends in that building, but they're all furniture. You have Brock Peters, who's a chief of police, but besides that being a standard Hollywood cliche, it's probably about as high as he's likely to get. He's also clearly on the take, and that's how he survives. And then you have Lincoln Kilpatrick, who is Zachary in Omega Man, who is a priest in this, in one of my favorite performances of the movie, because he is so completely shattered by the reality of what he knows about Soylent Green. He can't even express it. And he gets to be the character that basically says the Harry Harrison title and says make room, so they get that in there. There should be a requiem mass, but there's no room. Should I make room? This is very important. I can't help you. Forgive me, it's destroying me. That's the only time we really see black people turn up in this movie. So there's clear indications that this is, in keeping with reality, some serious racial divide aspects to the society as well. One of the stark sort of scenery changes that happens in the film, aside from when you're in the apartment building where the wealthy live, and you can see obviously the difference. They have air conditioning, they have running water, they have strawberries and soap is sort of when you get towards the end where Saul decides the only way that he can prove what's happening with the making of Soylent is to get Thorne to essentially follow his own body through the process. And so he goes to a building where they assist people in suicide. And it's like this bright beacon at the end of a road that has no street lights that everything is like dark and dismal but it's like brightly lit and at the end of it and like you open the door and everything is clean and bright and spacious and pleasant and everyone who works there is just happy the cool air blows out of the door as soon mm -hmm. as you open the door it's air conditioned the people who work there all have just like again a childlike understanding of what they're doing and a real joy to be providing this service to people it also just shows that they have plenty of room in some places right in thorn's apartment building there are people literally sleeping on the stairs that he has to climb over to get into his apartment but you walk into this place and it's got a huge lobby where you just wait in a line and then you get to go to your own room where you're on a bed in just the middle of this huge IMAX experience. And you mentioned there's also like this kind of faux generic religious dress to everyone there too with robes and 
Yeah, everyone wears like a similar outfit, but it's not a uniform, like hospitality uniform. It's not like the hotel. Everyone's wearing this sort of gold embroidered robes. It's the only place you ever see like white fabric because everyone else is so covered in dirt and dust and grime that everyone's in these white sort of flowing robes and they have a process that they don't do well when you interrupt their process. There's a ritual to it. You come in, you give them your preferences, your favorite color, your favorite music, and there's the ritual of putting you in the bed, which is on wheels and on a track so that they can just wheel the whole bed with your corpse in it out when you're done and wheel the next bed in for a new person. It has a a rhythm to it. And now we give you this drink and now you lay back and there's a precise timeline of how long it takes for you to die. And it plays just like a surround, surround sound experience of visuals of nature of babbling brooks and dancing animals and things. Let's see, this also brings up one of my, maybe not fully a question, but an interesting point about it too, is that when Thorne comes to find him, like you say, they have trouble with interruption. It's Dick Van Patten, who's leading Saul to his death. And he tells him, and a Mel Brooks regular, and and he tells him, you know, he wants to talk to him. And it's a very clever movie gimmick of he has to put on headphones at one point so that he hears what Saul tells him and we don't because the audio breaks um but when the shield opens and he sees what Saul's seeing he's overwhelmed to tears at this vision of what the world looked like but everybody that works there must see that all the time so as you pointed out does that mean they probably all live there and are probably kept separate from everybody else in the city because what if they were to say to people you know, yeah, it wasn't like it was when the deer were jumping around. And... Well, also the fact that they're all so clean and scrubbed, like they all have like clean flowing hair and those clean white robes. They don't set foot outside that building. I'm sure that they live there. Like that's This is the life. perk for their fulfilling that role is they're getting a yeah. better life. And ultimately, one of the things that really struck me is that the whole performative aspect of these deaths really exists for the staff and not for the person who is going there to die because nobody ever leaves it a Yelp review. (laughs) Like nobody goes back to the commissary and is like, that suicide parlor was amazing. You guys get like clean sheets and you get to watch deer frolic and, you know, listen to classical. Like nobody does that because they're dead. And so that experience exists to create a sense of purpose for the people working there. It's not for the people who go there to die because they don't know what to expect when they go in that room. All they know is that it's clean and bright and air conditioned and everyone there is going to be very nice to them. And when the person is dead, it's over and then that's it. And, they and roll it's them out. so stark, right? Because the lights come back on. Yeah. It's the look at... at uh... And Edward G. Robinson, like one second in orange and the next second in like the harshest light with his eyes open. That's and and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about Hollywood history, is it anybody that knows anything about this, but if you don't, is that obviously he and Charlton Heston had a bit of a history and a friendship. They were in Ten Commandments together, in which he basically played a villain, one of the Jewish overseers, you know, going against Moses. 
and he might have been in Planet of the Apes, and he's in the original makeup test as Dr. Zaius, but he wasn't able to handle the makeup because of his health at that time. And then by the time they get to Soylent Green, he was dying and was apparently in a great deal of distress through all of this filmmaking. And that death scene in his last shot there is the last thing he ever filmed. And 12 days after that, he died. And uh, it adds an additional weight to it that always strikes me when we get to that end mm -hmm. part. It's hard to look at him in that last part because you know he's thinking it while they're doing it. But it's powerful. And then that leads to the big final reveal because Thorne follows the body. And it's a sequence that anybody that remembers the V miniseries knows they basically recreated in V. Mark Singer follows the stuff and finds out where they're taking people. And uh, we talked about the fact that another aspect of this, and if you're hearing this, by the way, there's uh, rain raging outside as we complete this conversation, which is pretty <laughs> appropriate, actually. As we talked about is the fact that there's a bizarre, complicated process to take the body from the death facility to the Soylent factory or the waste disposal. And there's like handoffs of the truck. And, people, and we talked about how there seems to be a lot designed to make sure that nobody knows what the full journey of the body is to keep it secret, except for the fact also that, as we also pointed out, these people are illiterate, they're stupid. It's very unlikely that any of those individual workers are going to piece it together or, again, Logan's run, or be inquisitive enough to care. They drive the truck mm. and then they hand the truck off. So it's not going to be an issue. I don't think so, but it really it really struck me because I really focused on it this time is that the people who are administering the suicide are the ones who wheel him out of the room. But then when we see people being wheeled in, like their bodies wrapped up in cloth and being wheeled to the trucks, it's a different technician because they're in a uniform that's more like a maintenance uniform so once the bodies are wrapped up they're being wheeled like on those same beds but by different people to the waste disposal trucks that are then driven to the compound and the driver gets out and a new driver gets in and drives it on but it's like they must know that they're in a truck that has bodies in it or maybe they don't so i don't know if it's because they want them to know they're driving waste disposal, but they don't want them to know that that's waste coming from the suicide parlor, which maybe that's the case where they may know that they're backing it up to the waste disposal, but they think it's just general city trash. And then there's a remarkable like lack of people that you see inside the factory workings until you get into the Soylent production side of it. So for all they know, they're just making Soylent. Like they don't know where the materials are coming from because that process to break down the bodies is happening entirely in a mechanized way. There's not a single human being in that factory. And although we get the big reveal in the factory, and yes, Soylent Green is people, keep up everybody, we then have one last big action sequence in the church, which I always love because it's just an amazing fight sequence. Again, probably with plenty of Eppers on deck for that because everybody is laying around and becoming collateral damage in this final fight but it leads to heston's big final speech and the line everybody remembers which he does two different ways if i remember right the first time he says he says soil and green is made out of people but then he does the one soil and green is people but that's not where it ends and this is the thing that always drives me crazy everybody remembers that but the movie actually ends with them taking him out of the church and he's screaming soil and green is people we've got to stop him somehow 
it's kind of awkward sounding and it always drives me nuts because the Southern Greenest People line is quite rightly remembered and is so powerful. And then they take it one step too far and end on a line that's so weak. And then they freeze frame. The weird part also is another connection. They freeze frame on his hand. He's holding up his hand and there's blood on it. And it looks very much like the last shot of Beneath the Planet of the Apes where he reaches over to start the Alpha Omega bomb. But in a sense, you could argue there's a connection there too because I think we both agree there's no happy ending here. He's surely dying. The chief is clearly not going to bother going to the exchange. And he doesn't know that his chief is on the take. We know the exchange knows what's going on, but they were waiting for Thorn. The question then is, do they go to what they refer to? I think they refer to the League of Nations or some of the Council of Nations. And if so, even if they did, what's likely to happen? It just seems to me like there's no happy ending here. And as you said at the end this time, like Saul died for nothing. Thorn dies for nothing. Thorn could have agreed with the chief, closed the case, kept his mouth shut, and they probably would have lived the rest of their lives in the horrible situation they're in, but they would have lived. Yeah, I mean, and both movies sort of end with your protagonist trying to free the people around them from the lie that they've been living in. And you could really compare the scene of Thorne in the church shouting about Soylent Green to the scene of Logan and Jessica coming back into the city and standing on the balcony and screaming at the people that it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to go into carousel. And they laugh at him. They just laugh at him because to them, they're like, who is this nutball who's like yelling from the balcony while we're trying to go watch the incredible exploding people show? It has a similar feel to it that they're trying to rescue a group of people who don't want to be rescued and who don't even have the capacity to understand that they need rescuing from this system that they're in. Neither of them even know how to do it. They're both childlike enough that they think if I just tell them the truth, they'll believe it and they'll want to come with me and move forward in this. But they don't understand that on the whole, no one around them is even capable of understanding it. And of course, both of these movies are purely science fiction. Yes entirely science fiction. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NB Litovsky, that's NB Lit of Sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Logan's Run, 1976, and Soylent Green, 1973. That's a big yes for both. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, no one has to die at 30! You can live! Live! Last day, Capricorn 29s, year of the city, 2274. Carousel begins.